Hey guys, want to keep up with WMQ Comics but generally avoid social media because it's a forever burning trash fire? Sign up for the weekly Q newsletter and get all your comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plain old views emailed directly to your inbox once a week. You'll get links to all our original content, WMQ&A, bonus reading, Joshua Bermont's reviews, our See You Next Wednesday previews, without the nagging feeling the human race is better off being wiped out by a giant asteroid. Just go to WMQComics.com and fill out the field on the right-hand side with their email address. Do it today. WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the official podcast of the WMQ Comics website. I'm your host, Dan Grote. This week we're talking with Shauna McGuire, and uh, I'm going to warn you right now this is one of my favorite creator interviews that we've done since I started the show. Uh, in addition to being a hell of an X Men writer, uh, Shauna is hilarious, and uh, let's face it, she's a polymath. Uh, she's a novelist, she's a biologist, she's a horror expert. She's a lover of cats, and uh, this conversation goes all over the map. Uh, we do, of course, talk about her new Age of X-Men tie-in series, The Amazing Nightcrawler, which comes out this week, but we also talk about her enthusiasm for writing X-Men, her opposition to the way Texas treats rattlesnakes, the time her head was inside a pelican's mouth, and why podcasters would make great vampires. Enticed? Intrigued? Great! Now, let me tell you what's going on over at WMQComics.com. We've had some... Uh, Great original content up on the site uh, recently, including, appropriately enough for this week's guest, some great X-Men content, including Trent Seeley's review of the recently wrapped X-Men Disassembled story in Uncanny, and Charlie Davis's review of the just-wrapped Shatterstar miniseries. And this week, uh, Matt Lazowitz's bonus reading column is going to focus on four great Nightcrawler stories. Well, three great Nightcrawler stories and one Chuck Austin story, because as much as X-Fans like giving Chuck Austin shit, we still love talking about him. Uh, anyway, that's enough stalling. Here are me and Matt and Seanan. Uh, so, uh, Seanan, uh, Matt says that uh, you and he actually have a mutual friend. Do we? We do indeed. Veronica Furman says hello. Oh, you know Veronica. Oh, that's yes. wonderful. Yes, I, I, we were chatting a little while ago, and she was like, and I'm going to see my friend Seanan McGuire at New York Comic I'm like, the writer? And she's like, yeah. I was like, oh, you know, Veronica uh, grew up not too far from an apartment that me and my then fiance were living at. And about two weeks before the wedding, I, we were having a yard sale and I had a whole bunch of comics out, you know, doubles that I'd gotten from my days of buying massive runs on eBay to fill in, you know, much smaller runs in right. runs. And so I just had them all out and she wandered by and we became friendly and, you know, it was this kind of Wolverine kitty pride, you know, platonic, like, you know, Hey, you're cool. And I'm, and I got her, got her tickets to the theater and we've stayed friends over all these. That was a little over a decade ago That's now. God, yeah. yeah. Veronica is one of those people that actually kind of uh, lives in a romantic comedy how easily you meet folks sequence. Yeah. Not because she is in a romantic comedy, thankfully, but just people like her. Um, I actually kind of picked her up and brought her home after a Choirfly event at New York Comic Con a couple years ago, because uh, Choirfly comes in and does music during the intermission for Shipwreck, which is a terrible erotic fan fiction competition. <laughs> something that we will, at least Choirfly will be something. Veronica, we're, we're trying to figure out a time where she can squeeze in with all of our schedules on the podcast and it's something i assume she will be talking about when she comes on the show neat but yeah it's one of those it's a really small small geeky world 
Oh yeah, there are six people on the planet, and we know most of them. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, it, in, in fact, I was looking at you know your your, your bios and FAQs and everything. It said you lived in uh, New Jersey for a time, correct? Jersey City, yeah. Oh, how about yeah. that? Yeah, I went to high school in Jersey City. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, my uh, my friends John and Mayrav live out there, and uh, they still keep a bedroom for me at their place, which is really convenient when I need to come out for things like New York Comic Con. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's great because the, the woman who owns the nail salon right down the street is convinced that Mayrav is my sister, and that due to some deep buried family feud, she just kicks me out of the house whenever she wants to. <laughs> So now Mayrov can't go there to get her nails done because everyone in that nail salon is angry at her all the time for being so mean to me. Oh, dear. Uh, which is terrible, but fortunately Mayrov's not a big fan of manicures, so it's mostly just hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is fantastic. Um, yeah, so so let's get into the heart of the matter a little bit. Uh, you are writing Amazing Nightcrawler for the Agent... Yes! Uh, <laughs> For the Age of X-Men, where it looks like Kurt Wagner actually gets to live out his fantasy of being Errol Flynn, hopefully without the creepy parts. Uh, I am, I'm curious, though, uh, you know, obviously at this point when we're recording, nobody has anything to go off of besides Age of X-Men Alpha. But how intense did the discussion get over whether to shave the magnificent beard that Kurt had cultivated for himself over the past year? You know, I'm going to say something that's that's going to sound a little fake, um, but I hope that, that y'all uh, will understand because you've spoken to a lot of writers. Certainly. Uh, which is, I am still the most junior baby writer in, in the X pool. Like, I, I came on on April 22nd of this last year to do anything with them. Um, and that means I, I, don't, I don't get consulted on. A lot of these things. I didn't know whether Kurt was going to have a beard or not until I saw the first art from Alpha. And I know that sounds like I'm trying to pass the buck, but I I really, no input, no idea. (laughs) It's just, you know, it's just one of those things that like, it was very surprised, you know, not not that it was surprising to see Kurt grow a beard. I figured he could, but just seeing how well received that had become among the fandom over the past year. He's very passionate about the beard. Um, as a as a biologist, I kind of had issues with the beard because if he can grow the beard, why didn't he have a beard all along? How do you shave just your jawline? Like, what does he look like when he takes the beard off? Is it horrifying? Does he have to hide? So, well, he had that funky goatee during the Warren Ellis, Carlos Pacheco, Excalibur era. That but is I- true. I, I kind of picture it, there's an episode of The Simpsons where Homer shaves and then like 20 seconds later, the, the stubble just sort of reappears. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what I picture. Like Kurt shaves, he's, you know, clean shaven for like 20 seconds and then the like downy blue fur just kind of pops back out. And And see, I think you can roll with that if you're being a little comedic, but... I have a cat. He's a great cat. I love him. He has an anxiety disorder, which is weird to have in a cat. Uh, so we have to have him shaved so that he doesn't pull out and eat his own hair. And um, he he doesn't get his hair back in 30 seconds. He gets his hair back over the course of months. He looks like he has mange. It's not good. No. Uh, 
so yeah, I know people love the beard. I just I kind of had some overthinking issues with the beard, and I'm not sorry it's gone, but I didn't have any input in taking it away. Fair enough. <laughs> um, I, I do actually. I do seriously though. I, I like the new design with the with the like quaffed hair and the super high mm-hmm. collar. You know, it definitely looks like he's living his best life. Oh and, yeah, he's a happy dude. Yeah. And, you know, I just, I love that he's acting opposite uh, Megan. You know, it's got this whole sort of, you know, it's like an overdue gift for like longtime Excalibur fans and everything. I, as a longtime Excalibur fan, that is, this is the most self-indulgent team I could possibly have. And I'm so happy that these were the people they said, yeah, sure, whatever. Uh, you, you want Megan and the Stepford Cuckoos, have a party. Your team like mostly blonde women. Enjoy that. Uh, you want Kylan? No one's going to fight you. Pretty much, I, I the close I did we I, we did go through a couple iterations. There were some people I wanted who weren't available, um, or who other people had called dibs on. And mm-hmm. we we've all tried to be super good about sharing the toys because, you know, we have to work together on this event for six months, um, and and pretty much folks have been. I don't really feel like anybody is has hoarded the good toys. Um, you know, you did mention, you know, being sort of the, the baby in the X-Pool, you know, how does it, how are you enjoying being involved in your first sort of X-Men mega event? It is the best, like, weird nightmare adventure ever. Um, I am standing in the sausage factory, and that does not, in fact, decrease my enjoyment of sausage. I still love it very, very much. Um, it's been super weird. Like... Zach and Lonnie clearly thought through everything they thought needed to be thought through. And I still came in with, okay, here's 73 questions you don't have the answers for. Um, Which has got to have been amazing because I'm not the only one that came in with 73 questions that they didn't have the answers for. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's, it's been kicking the tires in real time. Um, when I was asked if I wanted to do this, uh, my editor, Chris, led off with, so do you remember House of M? And House of M is the event that I measure all other events against. So that was sort of like having someone ask, hey, do you remember that giant cake you dreamed about when you were 12? Do you want to eat it? I I do. I really do. Um. Yeah, and that is that is the 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 great thing about this is you know all, um, you know I think most of you guys are all like within your first year or so of of writing the X books and now you're all coming together in this in this you know big awesome party. Um, how has it been in terms of collaborating with all these guys? You know we have a we have a group Slack because we are modern weirdos, mm-hmm. um, and we have a lot of fun there. Mostly we're kind of in our own ponds except for making sure that everything slots together at the end. Uh, and that's essential because everyone scripts at a different pace. Um, I think that I would, would kind of go up a tree if I had to try and set my scripting schedule to making sure that everyone else's issues were, were coming out at the same time. But everyone has been so kind and so willing to collaborate. Uh, you know, when I explained what I was trying to do, and uh, was trying to find a telepath that uh, would fit my team. I actually had someone offer me one of their telepaths. Like, well, I've got <laughs> this character that's on my team, but it sounds like what you're doing with them might be cooler. So do you want them? Um, and, and that was just like, wow, you're all so nice. It's <laughs> a great change. 
it's it's so supportive. It's so wonderful. Uh, I don't care if we're the ex babies. I think that we're having the most fun. That is. I mean, go ahead, Matt. You know, those ex baby stories are great. I mean, all that art, Adam's art, you can't get can't That's get true. much better than that. <laughs> um, you uh, you also you wrote the uh, the Mystique one shot during uh, X Men Black Month, which with uh, Marco uh, Fila. Uh, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that name, but uh, you know, first of all, that was a super fun month. Uh, you know, a lot of great stories between uh, your Mystique story and uh, Leah and Chris Pachalo's Emma Frost story. You know, the apocalypse backups from Zach and Lonnie. I am curious with the Mystique story. Obviously, the fun of that story is watching her shape shift on a dime back and forth among characters as she's pulling off this heist. Did you find yourself getting more detailed notes to Marco to kind of accommodate all of that, you know, the shape shifting? <laughs> um, as much as I could. It was it was one of the more fleshed out scripts I've done uh, because I try very much to kind of stick with I will be as brief as I can uh, in scripting and description because the artist knows better than I do what's going to look amazing. And I want the artist to have the room to look amazing. But with that specific script, it had to be, you know, here's where where the change is happening. Here's what she's going to look like on the other side of the change. Uh, here is kind of blocking wise where that should fit. Uh, and that was that was delightful. It was like trying to script an improv theater troupe, uh, which is not a thing anyone should ever have to do, ever. <laughs> yeah, I can hear the twitching. <laughs> yeah, no. No, <laughs> Matt's theater background is uh, sympathizing with that sentiment right now. Yeah, a little bit. You know, my theater background was what made that so much fun to do. So I don't have as much sympathy as I might. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, I'm my day job is as the director of an IT, of IT for a nonprofit theater. So okay. I'm surrounded by theater day in and day out. Yeah, theater nerds are a special kind of special. Uh, we uh, we sure are. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I can't really come up with any more complimentary way to say that. So, <laughs> I'm one of them. This is not. I figure I'm. Ha I'm. If I'm punching down, I'm punching my own nose. So. No, I, I always say, you know, I have all, all these friends who work day jobs to support their theater habit after work. Mm -hmm. I have a theater day job to support my comic book habit after work. Hey. So, Whatever gets you there. You do what you do. Yup. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, getting back to Mystique for a second, I'm wondering if it helped, you know, kind of talking about plotting all this out with Marco, that you guys had already kind of worked together on the X-Men Gold Annual, uh, where Kitty goes to summer camp and kind of had, you know, started to establish, you know, a little bit of a rapport. Mm -hmm. uh, it did help because I'm a novelist, first off. Sure. You know, it's, it's been really fun uh, being in comics because I, I say I'm one of the, the super, super junior authors, and that is completely true in comics. Um, but in novels, I'm an international bestseller. I've won like every genre award. <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous. And now I'm going, yay, I'm a baby comics writer. It's amazing. Um, but one problem that folks coming from a text background into comics will sometimes have mm -hmm. is in text, you know, when I'm writing a novel, all that matters are my words. There is no art. Cover art may you know, will eventually happen, but it's always going to be secondary to the things that I'm saying and the things that I'm describing. And uh, so initially, Marco had some mild concern, uh, which I do not blame him for at all. And this is not me 
insulting my artist. This is my artist is a smart guy. Um, had some concern that he's like, how precious is she? Was was one of his very first questions about working with me. Mm. How much is she going to uh, to complain if she says the scene runs left to right and I draw the scene as right to left because that's how it actually flows. And, and that's a very valid worry for an artist to have when working with a novelist who's moving into comics. Um, so it helped me a lot that he had already kind of had that field trial and knew that I was not going to get all precious at him, that I, I really do believe he knows his job better than I know his job. Um, but, you know, we all we all roll as we roll. And and at this point, uh, Rosie, who was my first artist on Spider-Gwen, uh, was her first major title. So she wasn't concerned about my preciousness so much as she was with me in the land of sheer, screamy, oh, my gosh, I get to do comics. Um, and now I'm working with, uh, with Takeshi, and he's really great, and he's been around for a while. But at this point now, I've kind of been around for a little while, so there's less worry. Um, in the, uh, in the narration throughout that issue, Raven talks about art and craft and kind of putting in the work, talent not being enough. Uh, it's very, it all kind of turns, you know, again, it's a, it's a high story, but all in the meantime, there's all this sort of practical advice for, for anyone in, in the creative field. Uh, my, my, uh, I, I, my joke reaction upon finishing the story is like, I almost wanted her to, I wanted the last narration box to be, thank you for coming to my Ted talk. You know, that would not have been out of place, honestly. Um, I always kind of figure that that Raven takes random acting classes and possibly teaches random acting classes. Uh, my, how do I find my version of Raven so that I have something to say that hasn't already been said 90 times uh, was really, have you seen a show called Leverage? It is one of my favorite television shows of all time. So I basically write Raven Darkholm as evil Sophie Devereaux. That's kind of perfect. Exactly. And so Sophie is genuinely invested in her craft. She could pull off most of the cons that she takes part in no problem without working half as hard as she does. She works as hard as she does because she takes pride in her work. And uh, I wanted to tap into that because at this point, you know, with Destiny gone and pretty definitely not coming back with Kurt, not really speaking to her, all of that. Raven doesn't have a lot to hold on to anymore. She's, she's kind of at loose ends and you have to give a character something to hold on to, or why aren't they just hitting people with bricks for the whole issue? So that actually dovetails into the, actually the next thing I wanted to ask you about, but first, uh, because you just mentioned leverage, which is one of my favorite things ever. <clears throat> have you ever read atomic robo? Brian Clevenger's so, Atomic Robo. I am actually writing the introduction for the next volume of Atomic Robo. Oh, well, there we go. Have you read any of the real the real science adventure tie-in stuff? I have read all of the real science adventure tie-ins. Because, I mean, the, I, I, as I was reading the Nicodemus job, it's like, oh, oh my, this is leverage in Constantinople in the 1100s. Uh -huh. I love this. Th this speaks to my heart. Yeah. But um, so, I mean, you were just talking about Kurt and Destiny is, and it's like now, so you've written Mystique, you've written Nightcrawler. How long until you're going to write the rest of the extended Darkholm clan? I mean, 
Rogue's kind of locked up with Kelly Thompson over in Mr. and Mrs. X, but yeah. everyone's got to have that great Graydon Creed story in them, right? Or any of the innumerable other weird, somewhat adjacent members of that family? You know, and, um, all they have to do is tell me that I can. I mean, I, Frank, you just mentioned Destiny. I've personally always dreamed that someone would eventually do the story with Mystique and Destiny running rings around Sherlock Holmes. Well, and now is a good time to do it because it, it a lot of the subtext with Destiny and Mystique was because of the comics code and because of the era. Um, and I think that now you could finally do the proper Mystique and Destiny mini or, or ongoing where they're just like, yes, this is my blue shape-shifting wife and she's amazing. I mean, there, there were always those like that and it was part of tied into Claremont's idea that Mystique was Kurt's father and Destiny mm-hmm. the mother in uh, True Friends, where you right. see Raven as presenting as male with Destiny. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. always thought that it's like, oh, come on, you got a World War II spy story with Mystique and Destiny. I mean, it's, it, it, I won't say it writes itself, but it's just, it's such fertile ground. It really is. And again, Marvel has established that Sherlock Holmes does exist as a character in the Marvel Universe. If Destiny was that Irene Adler, and it was just her and Mystique deciding to challenge this guy who thinks he's the world's greatest detective. Again, there's so much potential there. That would be super fun. I, I would definitely root for that over Matt's uh, proposed Graydon uh, Creed series. <laughs> you get to write the fifth most famous anti-mutant bigot. <laughs> you know, though, again, uh, Baby X writer here, I, I have been made fun of repeatedly now by Bleeding Cool for being overly enthusiastic about writing the X-Men. Like, literally, they have written articles about new X writer Sean and McGuire nerds out over writing the X-Men. Um, to which I kind of have to say, really, you've never been excited about anything in your life? No. Uh, I have wanted this since I was seven years old. This is my childhood dream. This is my life's goal. Uh, when you have a literary career, one of the first things your agent does is sit you down and say okay, where do you want your career to go? What do you see happening in 10 to 15 years? And they're doing that not because they can deliver absolutely anything you might say, but because they want to know if you're going to say, I intend to be the next J.K. Rowling, I intend to be the next Stephen King, uh, so that they can kind of start that process of letting you down lightly, because you probably (laughs) won't. And what I said to my agent when we sat down for that talk before my first book had been published was, I want you to make me famous enough that they will have to let me write the X-Men. So I don't actually, I have no pride. I don't care what they offer me. If it means I'm still working in the X office, okay, cool. I am writing that amazing lifeguard slipstream road trip book. I am going to do the maggot marrow romantic comedy that absolutely no one is asking for. Um, It it does not matter to me. I am a professional with no standards right now. You you just made by using those particular names. I think you made certain aspects of the fandom very 
happy. And I will I will tell you that, you know, so, as somebody who's been reading X-Men comics for, you know, 25 plus years or whatever, like one thing I love about this current crop is how much they clearly are from the the fandom. Like you just read the stories now and it's just like, yeah, they get it. You know, and it's and it's you and it's Leah and it's Kelly and like the ones that I've gotten had the pleasure of talking to, just feeling that enthusiasm, you know, call it nerding out if you want. I, I, I think it's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I do, I feel like you have to love them to write them right. That doesn't mean I'm saying only I can write them right. It, it just means I think that it matters. Um, it also means that, you know, I adore Leah, which is why I was not upset when she got to do Emma and I didn't. But I still thought about being upset. <laughs> did, did you have a pitch for Emma? I did not. I was actually contacted and assigned Mystique. Okay. Um, which was great. Like, I love her. Um, she is not... She is not my top five, but she is definitely a mutant I have grown up with and adore. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I had only just wrapped the Kitty Pride one shot. Like my audition period has been a really fast, really fascinating thing. Um, I had just wrapped the Kitty Pride one shot. I don't think we'd even gone to lettering checks yet when Chris contacted me and asked if I wanted to do Mystique. So there was no chance I was saying no to anything at all. Um. You mentioned earlier House of M being kind of the X event, you know, that is your, your gold standard. Uh, I'm curious, what about that one in particular? Um, the coherency. So again, novelist, mm -hmm. professional overthinker. Um, <laughs> if you hand me an AU and say, find the holes, I am going to start trying to find the holes mm -hmm. immediately. And I'm going to find about 20 of them. House of M managed to be more coherent and put together over a long stretch of issues than most events do. Um, I love Age of Apocalypse. You know, I was a kid when Age of Apocalypse came out. Mm -hmm. I ran a White Wolf game based on Age of Apocalypse because I was a 16-year-old who thought I was the coolest <laughs> thing on the planet. Oh, it was so great. We did our time <laughs> jump in the middle of a game. Um, that whole thing. Because uh, AU characters are, are so much fun. It's great to see how a character could have gone under different circumstances. Um, but Age of Apocalypse can get to be a little bit one note if it's not being handled with great nuance. I mean, now that I've said this, they're going to contact me and ask me to do an Age of Apocalypse miniseries or something, and I will, of course, say yes, as we have already established. Um, but it's not its not a nuanced setting because it doesn't need to be. House of M, though, asked us to look at these characters, who they were, who they had been, who they had become, and what was important to them. And uh, in another little bit of the it's nice to see the fans running things, it was really great for me to see that in a world of pure wish fulfillment where you can have anything as long as that is the thing that Wanda would have seized on as, yes, this makes them happy, this makes them not question the reality I've built during that moment of creation, um, Peter would choose Gwen because he still feels he failed her and he knows on some level that Mary Jane can be happy without him. Um, that Scott would choose Emma because Scott and Emma do patch parts of each other that they don't even necessarily recognize are broken most of the time. And it showed an understanding of the characters that I really, really appreciated. Um, 
they weren't all necessarily the version of those characters that that I would say, no, this is the one that is right. I think that's part of the joy of being comics fans. We can argue for hours uh, over whose interpretation is just a little closer to perfect. Uh, but they were close enough to perfect for me, and they held together so beautifully through that event. Things like weaponizing Wallflower, you know, finally recognizing the horrifying potential of her power and letting us see what that could have been uh, was just so pleasing to me. I think two moments from that particular uh, story that always stood out to me is Peter's reaction in the last issue when he realizes he still has the memories of the House of M and being with Gwen and, you know, how that kind of upsets him. And then just sweet old, like 90 something year old Captain America. I think there's just a page where he goes and checks the mail. I might be misremembering that, but it, it's just like there, there was a Captain America tie in issue. Yeah, it was yeah. a Brubaker. But I think in the main, like, Bendis series, there's just, like, a couple of panels of him, like, stepping outside of his apartment, and you just have to, have to like, recognize that it's him from context clues. Right. And again, that this is what would make Steve happiest, is if he had gotten that happy ending. It, it was a series of soft epilogues, all kind of wrapped up in things going horrifyingly wrong. Um. But uh, in terms of, you know, now that you're kind of in in the event and, and, you know, helping write it, are you, you know, do you still feel that same compunction to, you know, I guess, look for the holes or, or now that now you're... Now it's my job! <laughs> <laughs> there are millions of me all around the world. And if we don't punch those holes, if we don't patch those holes... They're going to find them and they're going to yell at us about them on social media. <laughs> uh, like a like a road crew with just shovels of hot asphalt patching them in. <laughs> exactly. It's so much fun. <laughs> like being able to ask the questions that I would be asking if I were a reader is incredible. You know, how does this work? No, really. How does this work? How exactly is Willy Wonka getting past the health inspectors when he has his chocolate running in a river and there are bats in the chocolate factory? How much bat poop are gold bars allowed to contain? <laughs> I didn't think about that. No, you clearly did not. But I, I did. How much time does Alfred spend cleaning the bat computer every day from all that bat guano? Right. You know, um, it, it is so good to have it be my job. I am so annoying. I am the Hermione Granger of X-Writers. <laughs> like, excuse me, is it Leviosa or Leviosa? Well, it doesn't matter. The feather floats. It does matter. It matters so much. Okay, but now that begs the question, who is the Neville Longbottom of X-Writers? Um... Hmm. surprisingly badass will probably cut the head off of a giant snake if given the opportunity to do so. Yes, true hero of the franchise. True hero of the franchise. I don't think we actually need a true hero of the franchise. I, I think that honestly the worst thing any franchise can have is a true hero. I, I love Chris Claremont's work. Mm -hmm. I adore it. I grew up on it. I do reread it. It does not all hold up that well because it's a product of its time. But again and again... People will say, oh, it was better when Claremont was doing it. I, I don't know. Have you read some of the stuff Claremont did? He was a mastermind. He did incredible things 
we needed him. He saved the X-Men. He was the true hero of the X-Men. But now in some ways, people insisting we must do it exactly the way that Claremont did it harms things. You know, there's a lot of I want the story exactly the way I would have wanted the story when I was 12, only better. Yeah, yeah, there are those runs that everything lives in the shadow of afterwards and Claremont's a big example of that. Yeah. Anything Frank Miller touched in the eighties, so much of it lives in that shadow daredevil and Batman both. Yeah. So I, I love the work of the true heroes when we get them. I please listeners of this podcast, do not throw eggs at my house. I love Claremont. He is one of my heroes, but I think that whenever a franchise gets a true hero, it improves that run. It gives you something shining and glorious to hold on to, but it does not necessarily improve the franchise forever. No, it's it's always you know specifically of that time. I don't think modern comics could handle that you know volume of dialogue. Uh, you know now. Um, you know, uh, props to you know if we're if we're if we're calling uh, Claremont a, uh, a quote-unquote uh, true hero of the franchise, then I think Tommy Tom Orzakowski, his letterer, was, uh, you know, eas- easily the Neville there. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, holy cats, man. How did you do? <laughs> hey, gang. Uh, breaking into the audio for a second to let you know that there are so, there's a little bit of missing time here, and the reason for that is, uh, quite frankly, I asked a stupid question. And uh, Sean, and quite rightly, uh, called me out on it. So, uh, lesson learned there. Uh, but, anyway, uh, we're going to pick up with a uh, conversation about uh, what kind of liquor Emma Frost likes to drink. Enjoy. Now, we'll fight for hours on what does Emma Frost drink. Like, our opinions <laughs> on Emma's alcohol choices are, are wildly disparate because... She's from the East Coast and I'm from the West Coast and the signifiers of bored rich kid are different on our two coasts. Um, but uh, but that's a, a very inconsequential argument that we can usually have while drunk. What is what is uh, her, her preferred poison in your eyes? Uh, because, in, in my opinion, mm-hmm. Emma grew up a somewhat neglected rich girl, which is canon. Mm-hmm. Um, she would drink the drink of somewhat neglected rich girls, which is cheap-ass wine coolers. Okay. Hmm. They are terrible. They hurt your teeth. They hurt your stomach. You know, in public, when she's around people, she drinks expensive champagne. And, and you know, oh, look at me. I'm drinking this wine that costs $3,000 a bottle. And don't you wish you were me? But if she's having a bad day and no one's looking, it's just like, nope, I'm drinking the Bacardi. <laughs> This is terrible, and you cannot stop me. Um, because we are our roots, no matter how much we want not to be. See, thinking along those lines, I guess maybe it's the East Coast guy who bartended a lot of cast parties. I picture a lot of Franzia. Because it's awful. Yeah and, yeah. and easy to get. And yeah. Yeah, I just, I feel that Emma had enough cause to drink as a teenager. And we know canonically that she did drink enough as a teenager that she would have set her 
taste in booze, in comfort alcohol, very, very cheaply. Man, I had this all wrong. I went right to clear liquids like vodkas and such. I see now the error of my ways. <laughs> right. Well, and if you want to hear, you know, about the, the hard liquor version of Emma, talk to Leah, who has some great cases to make for Emma just getting fucked up on whiskey. Am I allowed to say fuck on this podcast? Yes, oh, yes, you are. Okay, good. We're good. good, good. <laughs> Swear away. <laughs> so, Matt, you had some questions oh, uh, about yeah. uh, Seanan's, uh, you know, I, uh, ex- voluminous yeah, I, amount I, of I, prose work. Right. My, oh, okay. That was the. I, I thought you said he had, that there were questions about Seanan's blood, and was no. going to have some real questions about why vampires are running a podcast. <laughs> well, you know, you can record at night. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, it, it, it is actually very convenient. Um, but yeah, no, I just, because I first read your work as short fiction. Mm-hmm. Because you're in a bunch of urban fantasy anthologies. That is true. With uh, Dresden Files shorts. Mm-hmm. And Amber, my wife and I are big Dresden Files people, and while she has no problem buying an anthology, reading the one story in the anthology that she actively bought the anthology for, and then putting it aside, I have to read the entire anthology because OCD. Um, And so I read a bunch of your short fiction, and since I don't know how many of our listeners have read your prose, I thought maybe if you have the chance, go on to give a couple of elevator pitches, uh, but your elevator pitches for Encrypted and October Day would be so we can spread the knowledge of your other work. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, so the October Day Urban Fantasy series basically takes the premise of what if Xena Warrior Princess were precisely as accurate to what really happened in ancient Greece as the fairy tales are to what really happened in the lands of fairy. Uh, fairy is real. The fae walk among us. They always have. They are probably bleeding on your favorite genes. Uh, October day, Toby, to her friends and to anyone who doesn't want to get pinched uh, or punched, is a changeling, meaning she has one fae parent and one human parent and has had to deal with trying to straddle the two worlds for her entire life. We are, it's my longest running series. Uh, we are 12 books in. My goal is to uh, jokingly, but not jokingly, run one <laughs> volume longer than the Dresden Files. Uh, and it, it's pretty popular. We do okay. I have a nice time. Toby's my friend. Um, and then Encrypted is my other primary urban fantasy series. And that basically takes the premise of what if all of the creatures from folklore from around the world were real? And the reason that sightings have dropped off is because monster hunters wiped most of them out. So you've got the Price family, which is a family of cryptozoologists working to preserve the remaining cryptids or monsters from death because they view them as essential ecological components of the Earth's biosphere. Uh, So why do we have all this cholera? Because we killed all the unicorns. That series changes narrators every book or two because, well, it's more fun for me that way. Uh, And book eight will be coming out in March. If you're looking for something that requires a little bit less of a ginormous time investment, because I do recognize that, hey, 12 books, that's that's not a weekend for anybody anymore. Uh, I do have a couple of series that are either closer to the beginning or just run shorter, uh, and that would be indexing, 
which is the fairy tale police. Uh, we say it's CSI Brothers Grimm, uh, or the Every Hearted Doorway books, the Wayward Children series from Tor, the first of which is called Every Hearted Doorway. The second is Down Among the Sticks and Bones. There are four so far, and they are novellas, which means they actually are a weekend read. Awesome. Um, oh, I'm sorry, Matt, were you about to say something? No, no. Okay. <laughs> I talk a lot. No, that's good. We love that. <laughs> we love the talkers. Yeah. Otherwise, we'll just ramble at each other because we've been doing that for 25 plus years. Yeah, and you can probably do that without my help at this point, I would think. <laughs> um, your bio on your website says you have yet to be defeated in a game of who here was bitten by the strangest thing. Uh I have no intention of competing with you, uh, but I am curious uh, what that thing was, uh, because I'm pretty sure it wasn't in the FAQs. Uh, that is true. How well does either of you wish to compete with me? <laughs> I have been bitten by things, but none of them are particularly unusual. See, because my answer uh, is based on the answers of the people around me. You don't want to just come out swinging with the, the biggest gun. Um, so probably right now for, mm -hmm. for two kind gentlemen who don't want to compete, the strangest thing would be the pelican that attempted to eat my entire head. Just the whole thing, just popped it in his mouth like it was some kind of bonbon. It does not smell good inside of a pelican. In fact, it smells rather bad. It's, uh, it's kind of like moist, fish-drenched scrotum in there. Oh, my. Mm. All right. It's a good time. <laughs> good time inside the pelican. Uh, was, was this in the wild or, or perhaps uh, in an yeah, aquarium? This, no, this was in Australia. Um, land of so many things that have decided to bite me. Uh, to be fair, I am normally uh, giving them really good reason to do so. I am a herpetologist, and I have the sense of self-preservation of a kitten on catnip. Um, so we, we like to joke that I'm God's problem now, because okay. uh, most of the time I really am. Uh, we were wandering around, and I found some pelicans. And uh, if you don't know how big an Australian pelican is, uh, there is literally no way I can make you believe me about how big they are. I had heard how big they were, and I had not believed trained naturalists who I trusted to deliver anti-venin shots in the field, because there was no possible way that they were not fucking with me about the <laughs> supposed size of this bird. I came around a corner, there was a pelican standing in the path directly in front of me, and I just sort of stopped and clutched my chest and said in an odd tone, Pokemon are real. <laughs> <laughs> because they are so big they are just they are an unreasonable size for a bird to be and um i sat down on a on a convenient log and was just having a nice chill time talking to this pelican you know telling each other all our hopes and dreams uh which in my case was words and in the pelican's case was ominous bill clatters and um i decided that uh, because we had built a rapport between us that i could take a selfie with the pelican. Uh, pro tips, uh, pelicans do not apparently like selfies. So as soon as I leaned back to take the picture, the pelican just put my entire fucking head inside of his mouth. Oh, hell's bells. It was a little, it was a little terrifying. I will admit I have been bitten by much worse and more venomous things than this pelican. And yet the pelican was frightening because it not only took my head, it took all visibility. Yeah. I'm can... excited now. I can see that. Yeah. H have you ever listened to the Thrilling Adventure Hour? No. 
okay, because there's a character there who's one of his things is that he gets bitten by stuff. Well, then he may secretly be me. Um, I had I was originally a dual major in folklore and herpetology at the University of California, Berkeley, Go Bears. And I actually had to leave the herpetology program because I had been bitten by so many venomous reptiles that they were not sure I could survive any further doses of anti-venom. Yikes. Yeah, no, he eventually gets bitten by a werewolf and his wife gets bitten by a vampire and their baby is the Antichrist. So, you know, like you do. Like you do. Yeah, valid, valid life choices. I have, to the best of my knowledge, been bitten by neither a vampire nor a werewolf. Um, I think I might have noticed, but who knows? Long incubation time, maybe I'll wake up in a week and be like, oh, shit, I thought it was a cobra, but really it was a vampire. As someone who's has a background in herpetology, have you, and I doubt you have, but you might have, have you ever heard of Reptiland out in the middle of the wilds of Pennsylvania? No. Yeah, it's this weird, in the middle of rural Pennsylvania, there's this really neat reptile, and I think it's mostly reptiles, I think there's some amphibians in there, like little, like, sanctuary zoo thing, and it's just, it's, like, there's nothing like it anywhere in that area, except this, it's like this big stretch of nothing and then you go, you're driving in this this one place that sells apparently, according to my wife and some of our uh, gaming group, the best beef jerky in the world. Okay. And then a little further down is Reptiland. Okay. Kind of like the Serpentarium out in North Carolina then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Serpentarium is sadly shut down because the person that owned it was bitten to death by a viper. And it turned out that his heir was a two-year-old. And two-year-olds cannot legally own warehouses full of venomous snakes in North Carolina. Hmm. It's probably for the best. Show me, show me in the Constitution awesome. where it says that. <laughs> right? Like, come on! If that kiddo wants a big warehouse full of venomous snakes, let the kiddo have it. Well, as long as the kiddo doesn't want to release the venomous snakes. If the if the kiddo wants to release the venomous snakes, this is America. They're his property. Let it go. <laughs> hey, I like some... venomous snakes a lot. Oh, I have nothing against venomous snakes. Venomous snakes are great. I, I think venomous snakes, there, there needs to be some informed consent when dealing with them. Oh. That's fair. That's fair. I can I can roll with that. But, you know, on that note, I would like all of Texas to cut it the fuck out with the rattlesnake roundups. So, hmm. you know, that's really where the informed consent needs to come in. Those venomous snakes are not consenting to what is being done to them. That is very true. Wait, hold on a second. This is... Wait, so basically Texas has its own whacking day? Is that is that what I'm hearing? Uh, yes, pretty much. Yeah. They, they round up vast quantities of rattlesnakes and then basically have a rattlesnake murder rodeo. Um, and since no one really likes rattlesnakes, unless they are herpetologists and weird, uh, no one objects to this, even though they, they are going out into the hills. They're going to places where the rattlesnakes are not only not bothering anyone, they're doing an important ecological service by keeping down the rats and the mice, which keeps the coyote population down, all of that. Uh, But they're going out into these hills and they're finding these rattlesnakes and then they're bringing them back to uh, so-called civilization so that they can be killed. Um, And and generally I'm very tolerant of other people's cultural practices because they're not my cultural practices and I should be. Um, But I would like the rattlesnake roundups to stop, please. 
I, I just don't think that it's very kind. Okay. Ah. Yeah. I talk a lot, and I'm a font of useless knowledge about snakes. Aren't you glad you have me on your podcast? I, I am. I yes. just learned a lot. <laughs> yeah. um, oh, uh, oh, sorry. One second. Okay. Down, Bess. Sorry. I should have muted that. My, my cat just decided that it was time to hop up here and say hello. Hello, kitty. Are you a good kitty? She's a very good kitty. She's very, very sweet and not too bright, but she's very, very sweet. She runs into glass doors, though, so mm, yeah. we, we have to kind of, you know, watch out for her. And we let her get away with murder because she she was a rescue and came from a not great situation. So mm. now, six years later, we still let her get away with murder, yeah. mostly because she's not a jittery, nervous, underweight mess anymore. Aww. And now she's just a big font of very sweet not too bright love yeah one of my cats megara uh she is is beautiful but she is the stupidest living mammal i have ever met <laughs> she gets into fights with the shadow of the ceiling fan and she loses mm. no, um, no. yeah the most common thing said to meg is thank god you're pretty <laughs> that is the exact thing that amber says to bess on occasion the, 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 I don't think I told this story when we had the creators of uh, Captain Ginger, the story about the anthropomorphic cats in space. But there was one time when Bess had been batting around a fallen foil wrapped truffle because she liked the way it bounced and the, the sound right. the foil made when she smacked it. Valid. The, the bat, the, doors to the entertainment center we had then the glass doors were they opened out and they were both open because i was playing video games and the playstation would overheat if you left it closed so she smacks it and it rolls under one of the glass doors and she walks up and she reaches under to try to get it and she can't it's too far she tries again she knows it's there she knows she could just walk around to get it but instead, she backs up two or three steps and runs face first into the glass door, bounces off, kind of waddles like a stunned prize fighter, and then just walks away because the thing has clearly escaped her. It's a good thing she's pretty. Yeah, she's also <laughs> afraid of mice. Mice are terrifying. They've got so many teeth. It stopped going into the kitchen and starved herself for two or three days. And we couldn't figure out why. And when we moved her food out of the kitchen, she wolfed it down. And the next day I went into the kitchen and there was a mouse that was sitting there eating one of the little fallen pieces of cat food. And so I, I caught the mouse in a bowl and a washcloth and walked it a mile and a half to the field near the house and let the mouse out because I wasn't going to hurt the thing, even though it scared my cat, who still to this day does not go anywhere near the mice. It's like you've got one job, Bess. No, she has no jobs. Her job is to be pretty. <laughs> and she's very good at it. There you go. So she's a winner. Yes, she is. Well, I'm glad she decided to come say hello. Thank you, Bess. Uh, so when you, when you have time to do so, uh, what are you reading now? Uh, I'm about to start T. Kingfisher's new horror novel, The Twisted Ones. I'm very excited about that. Uh, I've just finished J.F. 
Fields Argulum series, which was super fun. Um, if you mean comic books, I'm mostly reading everything the X Office puts out uh, because I need to stay on top of stuff, but also Atomic Robo because Atomic Robo is the best thing ever written. Mm. Uh, it just makes me so happy. It makes me so happy. I, I, I've yet to run a game of the Atomic Robo RPG, but I'm just waiting for my gaming group for us to have some time where I can run a one-off yeah. because I want to. Most of our one-off time is taken up with Dusk City Outlaws right now, and since Spectaculars is coming out later this year, I'm, I'm sadly not anticipating uh, any time for Wild Science Adventures. Yeah, and uh, we just started Uncharted Worlds after spending a year and a half in Ravenloft because there's nothing like living in a dystopia than going to play an RPG and it being a fantasy dystopia. Ravenloft's not a dystopia. It just has different political aims than people who like to keep their blood inside their bodies. Oh, that's that that is very true. Uh, I, I, I you make a very valid point. Will you just think of the undead for a change? Can you do that for me? I do my best, but when you're in Ravenloft and playing a monster hunter, you you get into a mindset. Well, clearly your mindset needs some updating. Oh, right. Time to drop those dated views, Matt. <laughs> yes. Aren't you just feeling like you've made good life choices tonight? Oh, well, you know, again, I, you know, you just, you just spend a year and a half, you know, trying to liberate the entire kingdom from a well, kingdom, but I guess dukedom? No, wait, no, Strat's not a duke, he's a count. I'm trying to remember what the proper name is for a, a area ruled by a count. It's a county? Oh. Yes, that would make sense. <laughs> a, a, the, the, the county from said vampire, you, you, you get stuck in your ways, and I'm sure there are you know, there are vampires out there who aren't attempting to you know, control the entire county, but Oh no. Yeah. No, no. Humans are livestock. If there are vampires around, the humans will be eaten. Well, yeah, I mean, at least, it, you know, at least he's lawful evil. I mean, it could be so much worse. I did figure out a reason for vampires to have a podcast. What's that? All of your listeners are inviting us into their homes. That's a very good point. So, you know, nightmare time. <laughs> Pleasant dreams, listeners. <laughs> yeah, the McElroys are just going to eat so many people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, well, Sean, and as we're, as we're wrapping up, uh, how can people follow you online if you, in fact, wish to be followed? Uh, well, you can always find me in your local haunted cornfield. I am the terrifying rustle in the wind, and I'm probably right behind you. But if that's not completely your jam... You can keep up with me at www.seananmcguire.com, uh, which is my website, which is usually up to date, at least so far as appearances are concerned. So if I'm going to be coming to a town near you and you need to know to break out the salt and lock the doors, that'll be a good way to get tipped off to my approach. Um, other than that, I'm on Twitter most of the time. Uh, where you can enjoy such wonderful and timeless hits as Seanan shows you a picture of her cat. Uh, Seanan shows you a picture of her other cat. 
Shannon has a lot of cats, doesn't she? And Shannon patiently attempts to explain to someone that while it's wonderful that they want spoilers for her upcoming comics work, she really likes her job and doesn't want to be fired. Um, those are generally the two best places to find me. I travel a lot. I'm actually leaving for Denver in the morning for a conference. So I'll probably be in a cornfield near you or a comic book store, bookstore, or convention very soon. Awesome. Uh, Shannon, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week's show. As always, you can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at WMQComics.com, where new episodes move Monday mornings. You can support WMQ&A and WMQComics.com at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes and the ability to promote your work on our site. And two dollars gets you a customized bonus reading column written by our own Matt Laswitz, built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. Big thanks to our first and foremost patron, Steve Morris from Shelf Dust and the MNT. Uh, you can follow WMQ Comics on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote and Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013. Finally, check out WMQComics.com for all your comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plain old views, and we'll see you next time. WMQA!